Take your Bibles, go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Wade couldn't have picked a better song for what I want to talk to you about this morning. What I believe makes me who I am. I had a professor in college who uh, used to say to us, a bunch of preacher boys, a bunch of raw guys sitting in his classroom, your creed determines your character, your character determines your conduct. Let me cripple that and run it back by you slowly so you get it. What you believe, your creed, determines who you are, your character. And who you are, your character, determines how you act, your conduct. Your creed determines your character. Your character determines your conduct. So what do you believe? When I got out of high school in 1900 and none of your business, <laughs> I will tell you that it was not a one-room schoolhouse. That's all I'll tell you. And I got out of high school, and uh, immediately my dad said to me, Son, you just graduated from high school. I said, Yes, sir. He said, Then get a job. And uh, it's easier said than done. We're out in the oil fields of West Texas, I started looking for a job and found one and determined pretty quickly that uh, they didn't care about high school diplomas. They just said, Take this shovel and go to work. Well, I found a job within a couple of months for a company based out of Shreveport, Louisiana. It was particularly tied to the production end of the oil field, and we were a pump and compressor sales and service organization. And so they said to me right away, we're going to teach you to be a pump and compressor mechanic. When you come to work tomorrow, make sure that you have a toolbox. I said, I'll be happy to do it. And I went home, and I said to my dad, I got a job. He said, good, that means you can continue living here. I said, uh, I have a problem. And he said, uh, what's your problem? I said, I don't have a toolbox. He said, that's not my problem, that's your problem. I said, Dad, that's a problem. Because I don't have the money to buy a toolbox because I don't have a job. So we made an agreement, my dad and I. That means he decided what it was going to be and I signed off on it. And that was he was going to buy me a toolbox and I was going to pay him back with the first paycheck that I got. And that toolbox I still have. So my main toolbox, I have it in one of the rooms at our house. We've been using it a lot as we've moved in. And it has things that you would expect, screwdrivers and wrenches and a couple of hammers and those kind of things. And uh, I've had that toolbox now for a long time. And I've added to it because we have something in our family called the road trammel curse. Here's the basis of the road trammel curse. No matter what you undertake, it's going to take longer than it should, it's going to cost more than it should, and it's going to be a lot harder than it ought to be. That's the road travel curse. Some of you suffer from that, I can tell by the way you're looking at me. So what happens with that through the years, any project that I take on that I'm going to try to do, historically I've tried to do my own car repairs as much as I could, and uh, that means that any job that I take on, I don't have the right tools. So that means I have to go buy the tools, so my tool chest has gotten bigger. Yesterday, we went, my nephew's here from Dallas, and my daughter's down, and we went to the Kuntz Trade Days. I didn't see any of you there. I thought, sure, I would see all of you there. You know, my favorite part of the whole thing was the tool area. I started looking at all that, and I thought, man, there's a lot of jobs that I don't have tools for, apparently. Well, my point in all of that is this. One of the things that you can count on from me as your pastor is to continue to try to hand you tools for the Christian life. 
I've been doing that, actually. You didn't know it, but this is now my fourth Sunday here as your pastor. And I've been trying to do some things as we work our way into my ministry here. And at least in the preaching ministry part of it, I've been trying to hand you some tools that are really core values for the Christian life. Not just core values for me as a minister, although that certainly is the case. But I'm trying to hand you tools that are core values for us as a church as we move forward. Today, we come to this primary tool. As a matter of fact, this is, I believe, job one in the life of a Christian. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is so important, this passage, that certain key voices in uh, Old Testament scholarship have weighed in on this passage. Many of you will know the name Walter Brueggemann. He has said this, it is impossible to overstate the importance of this particular passage. Patrick Miller said it is the touchstone for Israel's faith and life, the plumb line by which their relationship to the Lord of history was constantly being measured. If neither one of those two guys mean anything to you, try this one. A quote from a guy that most of you should know. His name is Jesus Christ. They came to him, Mark chapter 12, and said, Master of all of the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus quoted this passage. By definition, Jesus said this is job one for a Christian. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down. When you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And we could continue reading. I'll stop there because this captures enough for us to be busy for a while, actually. What I want to do today is continue some of what I've been doing in a little bit different fashion. See, what I've been doing for four weeks is unpacking boxes. I much prefer the unpacking to the packing. You know why? Because when you're packing, you know there's still unpacking to be done later. And we're here and we're unpacking. We're down to just a handful of boxes. I'm really used to unpacking. So what I want to do today first is I want to take this passage and unpack it. And we'll just lay the pieces out across the front here for you verbally. And then we'll come back and we'll put it all together. I had a little bit of experience with this. We needed a TV stand when we got here. And uh, so we went shopping, high-end stuff for us. We went to Walmart to find one of these uh, TV stands. Now, Walmart will trick you. Now, if any of you are the manager of Walmart, just close your ears for a minute and let me say a few things. You go to Walmart to buy a TV stand, and they have them assembled there so you can look at them and say, oh, that's nice, that looks real nice, let's have this one. And so you can pick which one you want and say, okay, I want this one. You know what they do? Oh, it's in that box right there. The box is the size of my Bible. And you throw water on it, and it just gets to be huge. So we get this box on and we lay all the pieces across our living room floor. Fortunately, my son was here from Conroe. He's the brainiac in our family. And we lay all this stuff out and we're thinking to ourselves, the road travel curse is about to kick in. So you see the finished product, you come back, you get the box, you open it up, you lay everything out there, but when it's all said and done, when you put it back together, it has a useful function. That's what we're going to do with this passage today. Let's unpack it first. Notice 
the first thing that we find. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel. Now this is the part that we usually just skip right over. Hear, O Israel. My wife had a special way of communicating with our children when they were young. This was great fun to watch, unless you happen to be the one on the other end of the equation. See, I, I could sit back and watch her as she was dealing with our kids. Now, my kids were maybe, I don't know, some of you may have children like this. They didn't always listen to what Mama had to say. Okay? But Mama always had a way of getting through to them. And so Teresa would get this look on her face and it would flash across and I would immediately go to the other side of the room where I knew it was going to be safer. And she would talk to the kids, I want you to listen to me. And usually that kind of sort of, you know, got their attention, but not always. But when they knew she meant business was when she would say to them, you look at me right here, and she'd point to her nose. And I would, my kids would snap too when she said that because they knew that there was pain attached if they did not do that. You look at me right here. And she would get them to look and they would just stare at her like that. And then she would start telling them what she had to say and they would hear it. Now, that's a physical perspective of what Moses is doing in this verse. Hear, O Israel. It is a statement that seizes the attention of the collective people known as the children of God. He says to them, hey, Listen up, but it's not just one of those, okay, in one ear and out the other things. The way he says this is written in such a way, and it communicates in such a way, that the children of Israel were intent in hearing, but also with a predisposition to do what was about to come. Hear, O Israel. Well, hear what? So we start with this statement. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Literally, the Hebrew comes off of this and translates as the Lord alone. Now, our English translations uh, try to make sense of that, as you see on the screen. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Literally, Yahweh is one. Scholars go two different ways with this. I happen to agree with radio. You know radio? You know, what kind of, uh, was it pie? What kind of pie do you want, radio? And what did he say? Y'all watch movies? Radio? Cuba Gooding Jr.? Okay, go watch it and we'll come back and I'll use that illustration again sometime. He said, I want both. Okay? So I think scholars are right on both sides of this thing. One group of scholars say Yahweh alone is a reference to Canaanite. Now that's the area in which the children of Israel were going in through the promised land, inhabited by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites had all different kinds of false gods. We find in Scripture Baal and Ashtoreth and other ones like that. And uh, so the children of Israel are going to go into that area. And these Canaanite people are already there with these false gods that they had. And these false gods were set up in worship centers called shrines, high places, Scripture calls them. But the Canaanite perspective was not what we find in our Christian beliefs, which is God is omnipresent, means he's everywhere. Uh, the Canaanite belief was that their gods were localized. And so when you find a high place of Baal, those people of that area set it up so that Baal would be present in their area, at least in their twisted way of thinking. So when Moses comes in and the statement here is God, Yahweh, is alone, they're saying that he is one God over all. Now we would believe that. 
Or at least you should believe that because that is the God of Scripture, the omnipresent God, one God, not multiple false gods. He is not limited by space. He is alone as God. Another group of scholars will take the same thing and they say, no, really what they're emphasizing there is the relationship end of Israel's relationship with God. So when they say Yahweh is alone, what they're really saying, these scholars would say, is that Moses is emphasizing the fact that Israel is not privy to, not even to go to, that idea that they can also adopt all these other gods. In fact, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, what Moses is doing is emphasizing the fact that God and Israel have a unique relationship. So here's what Moses is doing. He says, first of all, here, O Israel, listen up. He then starts with a fundamental truth of the relationship, and that is that God, this one God over all, the only God, has said to Israel, I alone am your God. I think scholars are right on both fronts, and it's intended to come together for us to see that God is saying to Israel, listen up, because this is serious business, and it is between you and me. Now, my tendency as we're unpacking this verse is to want to jump into application. I'm going to try to hold it off a little bit, so stay with me. But let me just throw this in. Already I've said enough to fly in the face of American Christianity. Because American Christianity is very comfortable with coming in and saying, well, I'm going to pick and choose with God. It's not that soul relationship, me and you, God. We, we throw in lots of gods, and we can call it money, and we can call it fame, and we can call it this, and we can call it that, but we don't really like this idea when you get right down to it of being alone with God. But let's keep moving. What does he say next? The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and now we come to the command part of it. You, what does he say? shall love... Now, see, American Christianity says, if you feel like it, love the Lord your God. Let's talk about this idea of love. This is a good time for us not to be Western in our thinking. And I'm not talking about cowboys and Indian Western. I'm talking about Western hemisphere, Western part of the world. It's a, it's a philosophy of life now. See, our Western view of love tends to be romantic and it tends to be reactionary. In other words, well, let me put it to you this way. When I do counseling with a couple who says they want to get married, uh, I bring them into my office for a series of meetings. Uh, One of the reasons I do that is because I found it's easier to get them to do that before the wedding than it is after the wedding and things are really kind of rocky. So I bring them in early. And I say, okay, let's talk about this. Invariably, I ask this question. I ask it to both of them, but I always start with the girl. Because the guy doesn't even know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's thinking. He's just kind of following. You know, she pulls the ring and he follows. And so I ask the girl. And usually I ask it pretty much this way, same inflection. I look at her and I say this, why are you going to marry him? What do you think she says to me? Well, I love him. And my response is, what? Him? Now, I always say, why are you going to do that? Well, he makes me feel good. Listen, if that's your view, 
and you're thinking about getting married, he'll get over that. So be careful. Our perspective on love tends to be emotional and reactionary. If you make me feel good, I'll love you. Most of us who have been married for any any length of time know that's a recipe for disaster in a marriage. Because sooner or later, your partner is not going to make you feel that good. But you see, our Western perspective on love ties directly to that. It's an emotional thing, and so we kind of go there in our thinking. My son is married, and we love our daughter-in-law to death. Matter of fact, we love her a lot more than we love our son, if you really get right. No, that's really... Well, maybe it's true. I don't, I don't know. But um, when they were dating, it was sickening to watch. You know what I mean? Oh, they just look at each other and you got that look in their eyes. I was going, oh, gag. Just don't even. <laughs> now, they've been married long enough, three years plus, and, you know, they don't look like that at one another. And it's a lot easier to be around them because of that. But they love one another. And it's obvious that they love one another. You know how I know that? Because I can see it in how they treat one another. But they don't do that because they feel good. It is a choice that they make. That's the picture of this word. Love, in this ancient Near Eastern context we find here, is a legal term. There's no emotion attached to this at all. When God says through Moses to the children of Israel, by extension to us, love the Lord your God. It is a choice. Matter of fact, it is a legally binding kind of choice. As a matter of fact, this term comes from a a contractual kind of basis. It is a contract between a superior and an inferior person as far as business grounds are concerned. You might think of a person who is a landowner drawing up a contract and having a contract with somebody who is going to work the land. So you have this one who has the power and this one who doesn't. And the term that they use in that contract is the term love. So, according to the term and according to the way it was used in this particular time, the landowner would love the person who's going to work his land by, and he would show that to him by providing the land, providing whatever he needed according to the contract to make it happen. The worker would love the landowner by showing up for work, working the land, giving a portion of the proceeds from the crops and all that kind of stuff. It is strictly a legal term, a lesser and a greater drawing a contract. What that needs to tell us is when we come to this passage, God is saying to the children of Israel, we have a deal here. I'm the greater, you're the lesser, and we love one another. You see, in American Christianity, we love the receiving end of that. American Christianity is very consumer-oriented. It fits into that squishy kind of love that I talked about in that emotional kind of thing. As long as God does for me the things that I want, then I'll love Him. But the minute that He stops giving me what I want, well, then I'm not sure if I have time for Him or not. Let me tell you, whatever else you want to call that, that's not love. It is a consumer-based relationship. So if you don't like Walmart, 
then you don't go. And a lot of people don't like God, so they don't go. But boy, they don't mind turning the tables on him when God doesn't come through for them. Moses uses terminology here. You shall, that's not optional. You shall love the Lord your God. And then he goes on. I'm going to run out of time before I even get close to finishing this. So let me see if I can wrap it up this way. He qualifies that now. Three different statements. How much should I love God? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Three different terms in this place intended to be taken collectively. The heart being that center of a person. We might think of that volitional, that willful choice part of him. He says, you shall love him at the center. Well, we would probably put that more in our head than what we think of in the heart. But in the ancient Near Eastern uh, framework, this is that, that volitional part of a person. And then he goes to the next step with all of your soul. That tends to be the emotional part of him, that part where we kind of feel things in life. And so he puts those two together. Our term says, love him with your head, love him with your heart. And then finally, that last one is actually all your might, is really kind of an adverb. It's like the word exceedingly. In other words, it says, take your head, take your heart, and in as great a way as you possibly can imagine, apply it to your love for God. Remember, that's a choice with him. Moses takes kind of a different way of pulling this together to say to us this fundamental truth. Okay? We just unpacked it. Now let's see the finished product. Moses says, your commitment to God is job one. Remember, They came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? Jesus Jesus didn't blink an eye. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to wander around and say, let me research that and get back with you. He immediately responds, not by quoting one of the Ten Commandments, but by quoting this passage. And then he filled it full of new meaning for them. Job one for a child of God is to put God first. It's not dependent on on what God does for you. It's not dependent on how you feel at the moment. It's not dependent on anything other than your choice. I choose to make God number one. You know, preacher, if I do that, I might have to uh, go to Africa on mission. You're right. You might have to. If God says to you, you put me first then you might have to do a lot of different things. God might say to you, I don't want you going to Africa. I want you to stay here. Then what are you going to do? God might even say to you, I want you to change how you live. See, American Christianity doesn't like a God like that. We like a God who's our own nice, well, as, uh, well, I'll just say it this way. We like our own little personal Jesus that we can mold and, caress and talk to and get what we want. Moses lays out for us a basic truth in the Christian life. And it is this. Your number one job as a child of God is put God first in every aspect of your life. A lot of things we could add to that. There's even more that is said in this particular case. The fact of the matter is there's enough there 
for us to spend a lifetime of fleshing it out. Who is God to you? When you get right down to it, how would you know if you love God or not? Let's put it this way. How much is he on your mind through the course of the day? You look through the rest of this passage, and he is very intentional, Moses is, in putting things in place to make people keep this in front of them. Frontlets between your eyes. Jews to this day have little boxes or Orthodox Jews do called phylacteries and in it has the law and they put it and they put it on their head and it holds it right there so that they're kind of physically carrying out this passage. They wrap things around their arms during times of prayer as a way of doing some of the rest of this stuff. They have mezuzahs that they stick on their door frames and as they go in they come out, they kiss their fingers and touch the mezuzah as a way of saying, Okay God, I'm gonna put you first but the tendency for them as it is for us is to do our little kiss for God and then walk out into a world and do our own thing for the rest of the day. And that totally violates this one principle. Job one for a child of God is to put God first. Let's pray. As we go into time of prayer, let me just ask you to stand to your feet, if you will, heads bowed and eyes closed. Invitation time. And here's the invitation for you. Where is God in your life? Can you honestly say that he is number one for you? As you look back over your life this week, what role did God play for you? Father, we come to this time. We recognize it's very, very possible that we've not even given you a second thought since last Sunday. We've gone through every element of our lives. We've been worried about violence in the world. We've been worried about debt ceilings, stock market performance. Never really stopped to think that you might have something to say to us about all of those things. Father, we ask that you forgive us for those places in our lives, those times when we live lives of practical atheism as if you don't even exist even as we say that we love you help us to get this truth Father the center of who we are we bow our knee to you as our God this time of invitation is specifically for you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior you settled that decision a long time ago in your life this invitation for you today is to make a conscious choice to let God be God and I don't know what that looks like in your life I don't know what's going on in your life I don't even have to know that what I do know is God says to you I am the same God who said those words to Moses to the children of Israel and I demand to be God in your life. If that's a choice you need to make today, you don't know how to make that happen. My invitation to you is you just slip out and come forward. I'll talk to you a little bit. We've got deacons ready to talk to you if that's what we need to do. We'll pray with you if that's all you need. Maybe you don't need to talk to us. Maybe you just want to come up here and pray. 
But in the time that we have, just a few more moments together, the quietness of this time, will you choose to let God be first? Even if it means giving up the control of your life. It's possible. In a crowd like this, somebody here today doesn't know Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. If you don't know him, you're missing out on true life. God's love for you is incredible. Extravagant it is. And he offers you life. We offer it to you today. You need to know how to receive eternal life in Jesus Christ. We'd be happy to share that with you. We invite you to just step out, slip forward, and we'll talk with you. I'll be quiet now. The invitation is for you to do business with God right there where you are. What is God saying to you? You come.